<laughs> We've been going through the last uh, several weeks through some of these fundamentals of the faith. We've talked about how we understand God's will through Scripture alone. There's no human authority that matters. There's no tradition that matters. It's, you know, we may like to do things a certain way. You know, you may uh, have some Thanksgiving tradition in your family uh, where you always do something the same way. And that's fine. That's wonderful. Until you start to tell somebody that it's a sin for them not to do things the way your family likes to do it. You know, say, no, you have to do this. I can't believe you heathens eating, you know, this first. Um, In the same way, you know, churches do not have any right to say, okay, this is the way we like to do things, and somebody is sinning if they don't do things our way. (laughs) The only authority in the Christian life is the Word of God. That is something that, you know, when I, last week, uh, or earlier this week, well, Sunday, but last week went to the uh, uh, pastors, you know, the state association meeting, and listened to these different pastors, and, you know, there are people, different pastors of different churches, that will not have anything to do with each other, because they don't like the methods that different people use. They say, oh, you know, he just uh, has, well, I'll, I'll give you a very specific example. I went to and preached in a church one time, a uh, long time, years ago, and the I went to lunch with the deacon or somebody, and they were talking, and I was just kind of asking, you know, just making small talk, asking about the other churches in the area, and um, they said, I said, you know, what, what, what's it like around here? They said, well, you know, there's a couple churches that we associate with, um, but, you know, a lot of the churches around here are just uh, eaten up with liberalism. I thought, well, what... What do you mean? I said, well, there's this church down the road, for example, and they've just basically gone off the deep end. You know, they have a guitar in their service, and they clap their hands, and so they just not scriptural. (laughs) And so these people that I was talking to had taken the way that they like to do things and decided that if somebody did things a different way, then they'd abandon the Bible. They were confused about where the authority was. We all have preferences. We all like things. We like things. Uh, and things that we don't like. You know, I, I don't think it's any secret to anybody that I hate organ music. I just If the world's greatest organist was in town and they were giving me a, you know, tickets to a free concert, I just think that I'd have a toothache that day or something. I just don't have any interest in organ music at all. I know some people, my dad loves organ music. And, uh, you know, that's what working in a machine shop for 25 years will do to your hearing. And I just... Different people have different preferences, but the first only, the first alone is that Scripture alone is our rule of faith and practice. If you want to learn how to live, you want to learn what to do, you will learn it from the Bible and no other place. And if you start to try to impose a standard other than the Bible on someone, then you are wrong. Now, on the other hand, and we're going to talk about this more, if there is a biblical standard then there's nothing wrong with expecting people that are Christians to live up to a standard that's actually in the Bible. (laughs) So if, you know, if somebody has got a bad attitude or, you know, use something that seems really tame, somebody's got a bad attitude and you come to them in the Bible, say, you know, you're sinning. You are rebelling against the God of the universe with your bad attitude. Scripture alone means you don't get to ignore what the Bible says. (laughs) Or if you don't like what the Bible says about marriage or what the Bible says about family or what the Bible says about it doesn't matter what I'm, what it is but if, if you don't like what the Bible says tough <laughs> our rule of how we live is the Bible and the Bible alone and it's interesting 
people, the Bible is always going to rub different people the wrong way. You know, there's no culture that has ever been 100% in agreement with the scriptures. Some of them, you know, agree with the scriptures on some things and don't like other things the Bible teaches. In the early Roman world, you know, when the gospel was first reaching out, there were lots of things they hated about Christians. You know, they said that Christians were too narrow-minded because they only, they said the only way to heaven was through Jesus. Christians, um, unlike the Roman world around them, opposed abortion and infanticide. Uh, Romans, if you were a Roman and you had a girl and you wanted a boy, you just left him outside to die of exposure if you didn't, you know, or had an abortion if you didn't want a baby at all. Christians, early Christians said no. And then, on the other hand, uh, you know, they said, uh, Christians said, you know, no sex outside of marriage, things like that, that were not popular for the Romans. The Romans were a very uh, open culture in those ways. On the other hand, Christians allowed, you know, thing, uh, taught things like that women and men were both equally made in the image of God, and that women ought to be empowered and ought to be able to, to serve God in different ways, and that really upset the Romans. And Christians were so obsessively passionate about the poor that in the first couple centuries of Christianity, they took it really seriously, and they sold everything they had and gave it to the poor. <laughs> And Christians would uh, fight for the liberation of the oppressed. Christians would fight for the orphan and the widow and try to defend them. Early Christians would not participate in military service, interestingly, because uh, of the way that it was associated with Caesar uh, and Caesar trying to claim to be God and building up personal power for Caesar. Now, if I wanted to vote for somebody that held to all of those standards that Christians have historically held to, I would not be able to find a party that would support all those, right? <laughs> if I went to some parts of the world and I would experience some things that some people, certain parts of the world, they really disagree with some parts of the Bible. Different parts of the world disagree with different parts. We cannot depend on our culture. We have to depend on the scripture alone. The most offensive thing, though, of course, throughout all the ages is the next alone, Christ alone, <laughs> Not only do we believe that the Bible alone is our rule of faith and practice, but we believe that the Bible teaches that Jesus alone is the way to God. <laughs> that there's no, no substitutes, no other ways. That if somebody's never heard about Jesus, then we may not like the fact that that means that they stand condemned, but we can't deny the fact that somebody is condemned who hasn't placed their trust in Jesus. You know, I, I mentioned it before, the response of the early Christians to the question of what about people who have never heard was tell them. If we were serious about reaching the lost, that there wouldn't be anybody who had never heard. The apostles, the 11 apostles, when Matthias makes 12, the apostles evangelized the entire world that they knew about in about 50 years. They did more in the first 50 years because they were serious about abandoning everything and following Jesus completely than we have done in the 1900 years since. Isn't that horrifying? You know, there are still hundreds of people groups around the world with no gospel witness at all. There are people, not, not just the place you've heard about, although you know, we had uh, Brother Glenn Knight here and he talked about these islands in the Philippines that he gets to, and these people have never heard of Jesus before. He's the first foreigner that's ever been to these islands. To 
told you about Chase Reynolds in Indonesia who went there and has uh, developed a written language for the people, uh, the Yetpa people there on Papua, and has translated the Bible so they could hear about Jesus for the first time. There are tribes in Africa. I've got a, in Kenya, a John Strader, who's been here with us, um, said that in about a one-hour radius, there are dozens of tribes with no Christians in them from where he is. There's no, there's no out, you know, this outreach. And again, I've asked you before, and I'll ask you again, when was the last time that here in the United States someone told you how to be saved? Say, well, you know, somebody in, invited me to their church or somebody told me about their church. That's not what I asked. <laughs> when was the last time that somebody told you how to become a Christian? Somebody gave you the gospel. When was the last time, of course, there it comes, that you gave somebody the gospel? If you believe, as I hope you believe, that Jesus alone is the only way to heaven and that all your friends and neighbors and family members who don't have Jesus are going to die and go to a devil's hell, then why do you keep your mouth so shut? Now, why do people, if we believe that Jesus has come and has given his life for us, why is it that when it gets around holidays, not just here, but everywhere, why is it that when it gets around holidays, church attendance across America plummets? Really, from about the beginning of November until January, church attendance drops on average like 25% or something. Why, why is that? Because somewhere along the way, we got our priorities out of whack. For most people, instead of thinking Jesus alone is the only way to glorify God, Jesus alone is the center of all that we are and all that we do, for most people, it seems like what we actually believe is that there's, you know, about 12 different good things we can do. Yeah, we just say, well, I'm going to do this, this will be good, and I'm going to do this, this will be good, I'm going to do this, this will be good. And somewhere along the way, we've forgotten that Jesus said, unless a man takes up his cross and forsakes all and follows me, he cannot be my disciple. We've got a lot of times that I think that we as Christians claim to be disciples, claim to be followers of Jesus when we're not. So in this centrality of by the authority of the Bible alone, we must come to Christ alone. Our next alone is faith alone. So now I've got to take these things that I've been saying, these really heavy things, and now I've got to balance it a little bit. Because ultimately, we need to behave, we need to serve, we need to do the right things. But those are not the things that put you in a right standing with God. The thing that puts you in a right standing with God is to simply trust him, faith alone. And so we've got to understand that, yes, it's Christ alone, it's the scripture alone, our lives are broken, we're failing at the one thing God has called us to do, to preach the gospel here, there, and everywhere. But at the same time, that's not where our standing with God originates. Our standing with God originates in trusting him. And once we've trusted him, he changed our hearts, and then we serve out from there. The last alone we looked at, of course, uh, Grace alone. That the reason faith is all that matters is that everything that we have is the free gift of God. We spent, we looked at that just last week. So now I'm interested in the final one, the, the culmination of it all. That all these things, our salvation, our relationship with God that we learn about in the scripture alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, finally is for the glory of God alone. You ever wonder why God saved you? Maybe he has saved you if you are a Christian. God didn't save you because you were just great. 
you know, if God was only going to save the people who were great, then there wouldn't have been any reason for Jesus to come die. God didn't save you so that in heaven you could say, wow, look at me. I made it. You know, I worked hard. I ate my vegetables. I flossed. And now here I am on the golden streets. That's not how it works. God <laughs> saved you. The Bible says in several different places, I'm thinking of the book of Ezekiel, God says, for my own name's sake, I delivered them. God saves us. God does everything that he does for his own glory. Glory is the goodness, the greatness of God. And when that greatness of God bleeds out into reality, you know, if there was a, a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, there was a light so bright they couldn't go in the temple. When the goodness of God was revealed, that was his glory on display. You remember what the angels cried out to each other, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Everything that happens is not for us, but for the glory of God. And you say, isn't that a little bit demeaning? You know, isn't it kind of self-centered of God to make everything about him? You know, isn't it, doesn't it make human beings seem kind of like we're low value <laughs> Well, I've got a couple answers to that. One is, of course, the text that we're about to read. But a, a, a simple one is on the basis of the best Christians that you've ever known, I am quite confident that if we were to take bets right now, that the people that you have known have been, who have been the most concerned about the glory of God have treated other people the best. And the ones who look down and put standards other than the Bible on other people and are, are, don't really care very much about the glory of God. The more that we fix our eyes on God, the more it puts everything else in our life into alignment. The first four verses we're going to look at, 11, 12, 13, and 14, are one sentence in the Greek. And that's really what we're going to start with, is reading these verses here. So look with me, if you would, in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works." Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for this day. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your glory, God. We thank you for what you've done for us and what you will do for us. And just ask that you would place on our hearts today a renewed love for you, a renewed passion for putting your greatness on display, a renewed desire, Lord, to not make things about ourselves, but to make them about you and you alone. So, Father, I ask that you would receive all the praise in our services today, that you would win our hearts, that we would then bring you, bring your name to the nations, Father, that many souls would be saved and many lives would be changed. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've titled the message this morning, The Grace and the Glory, because there's two parts of this text that we're looking at today. The grace of God has appeared and the glory of God that will appear. And so I think that as we see it in these two phases, 
we're going to really come to understand much better how it is that everything culminates for the glory of God alone. I want this morning for you to be captured by a love for God's praise. I want you to be captured by a love for God to be lifted up. I want you to love God so much that when somebody blasphemes or somebody you know, uses God's name in a, a casual manner, that something about you prickles up because your greatest passion is the glory of God. Your greatest passion is for God's name to be honored. I want when somebody starts to praise you for something or starts to give you some, you know, uh, a pat on the back, I want your immediate response to be to try to deflect it to God. And the fact that that is not our default mode, that most of us as Christians do not have that kind of passion, that there are people who claim to be Christians that will use God's name like a cuss word, that there are people who claim to be Christians who will not be bothered to do the first thing in service for God, means that we don't love him enough. What you need is not somebody to kick you in the pants and get you to work so much as you need a heart that really loves God the way that it ought to love God, and then nobody will have to kick you in the pants anymore. If you love God, if you say, I want God's glory on display, I want people to know about God even if it hurts me. Is that true? Do you feel that way? Is that, I mean, it's, a, it's a hard question. You better be careful how you answer me this morning. If you say... You know, if somebody came in here right now, I know the most recent church shooting was a family dispute and wasn't like this, but if somebody came in here right now and said, who in here really loves Jesus? Somebody stands up and said, I do, and they're killed. Are you going to stand up and say, I love Jesus, I will give my life for him, or not? Now, before you tell me that you would give your life for the glory of Jesus, how many things are you not giving for the glory of Jesus Christ? Before you expect me to believe that you love God enough to die for him, do you love God enough to make peace with this person that you've got a grudge against? Do you love God enough to read your Bible? Do you love God enough to pray? Do you love God enough to serve? You say, I want the whole world to know about Jesus. I'll die for his name, but I won't tell my neighbor his name. Not next, not this summer Sunday, but the following Sunday will be my last Sunday. And we've got, on Wednesday nights, 15, 25 kids that come from families where there is no gospel witness, where almost all of them have single parents and drugs and everything else. We have some that have been homeless on and off that are living with friends. When we leave, Colleen's not going to be here anymore to drive the van and pick them up. So before you tell me that you would die for Jesus, I wonder how many excuses you would have about why you couldn't take the name of Jesus to some kids if I handed you a van key. Before you tell me you would die for Jesus, I don't know what anybody gives financially or whatever. It's none of my business. But I want to know how faithful are you in seeking first the kingdom of God with your finances. Before you tell me you would die for Jesus, I want to know, is there any known sin in your life that you tolerate? There's something you know you shouldn't be doing, and you just carry on with it anyway because you care more about yourself than God. Before you tell me that your heart is fixed on the glory of God because of your passionate response to the grace of God, I want to know, does he really have your whole life? <laughs> How could a lost person ever believe that they ought to give their heart to Jesus when there are so many so-called Christians where it's obvious that Jesus does not have their hearts. See, Jesus did not come 
and give his life on the cross and die in your place for every other weekend visitation. (laughs) Jesus bought all of you. And sometimes it makes me kind of upset how petty Christians can be. (laughs) You know, (laughs) so, so immature, so irresponsible. That's why in 1 Corinthians, Paul calls them a bunch of babies, right? He says, you're not a church, you're a nursery. You're a glorified nursery. Everybody's so carnal, everybody's so self-centered, everybody's always worried about what they like or what's in it for them, that the world's going to hell around them, and they can't be bothered to do anything but whine. So as we think this morning about this subject, that everything we have is for the glory of God alone, and as you start to mentally check out because you say, oh, that's so basic, I know everything's for God's glory, I want you to look at yourself and tell me, can you honestly say that everything in your life is for God's glory, that you align your whole life to bring praise to the one who gave his life for you, or not? And so... You know, and I'm not, I don't know, I can't, I can't see everything about your heart. But I know that on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights, we've got about two and a half people here. <laughs> you know, I know that uh, this morning it's cold outside and so people stay home. I know that we've got a lot of excuses and a lot of reasons why we cannot do the thing that God has called us to do. I know that I cannot remember the last time that we baptized somebody here who had been led to Christ by one of you. And I'm really starting to get kind of mean, aren't I? But it's a real question. When was the last time that you shared the gospel with somebody? You say, well, you know, it's not my fault if people don't come to Christ. You know, it's up to them. And that's true. But Jesus said, go ye therefore. So when was the last time you went? You know, I don't know. We had a low year last year. I think we had six baptisms or something. Um, but I'm trying to figure out how, how many of that were people in the church. I mean that in the nicest way possible. You know? I'm uh, concerned that as Christians, not just here but everywhere, but you're all the ones that are listening to me, so I can be a little pointed. Not just here but everywhere, our hearts are divided. And what ought to be for the glory of God alone becomes about our preferences alone or becomes about our comfort alone or becomes about, well, this is the way that I like to do things or I don't like this person or I do like this person alone. And if you're willing to, if you're not willing to do those things, don't you dare lie and blaspheme. Don't take the name of the Lord God in vain by calling yourself a Christian. Jesus said, if you won't deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. God's grace has already appeared. When Jesus came and he died on the cross, he put his grace on display so that everyone who cares to look can see that salvation that's for all men. And the King James, the English is a little confusing. Uh, Appeared to all men. uh, Appeared is not to all men. Bring salvation to all men. So in modern English, we'd probably put commas or something in there. But it's for the grace of God that brings salvation to all men has appeared. Jesus has secured salvation for all people, and it is now here. But, and the reason I make that clarification, is it really has not yet appeared to all men. Because people will not be aware of the gospel until we take it to them. 
Jesus has, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. That means it's our job to reconcile people to each other and reconcile them to God. So the grace of God is here. God's unconditional love, his unmerited favor has come and purchased and brought salvation for everyone. Jesus came and he loved us so much that he gave all of himself, that the spotless, sinless son of God died to buy salvation for everyone. I mean, to imagine that somewhere there's a famine and that people for hundreds of miles around are dying, starving to death, men, women, boys and girls, dying of starvation. And then I want you to imagine that right in the middle of that is a warehouse full of bread that's molding and sitting still. What would you think about the person who owns that warehouse, who had the resources to feed and supply everybody around while they were dying, but couldn't be bothered to open up the doors and tell people they could come and get it? There is plenty of grace to go around, but it sits here molding and mildewing because we don't take it out to the people who are dying. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. God has come. He's brought his grace. He's already shown us his grace. He's shown us everything we need to bring people to life in him. And that grace, I told you it's the grace and the glory, that grace says a couple things. The first thing is, of course, that it's appeared to all men. (laughs) The second thing is that it's taught us some things. Grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. So grace has appeared. It's taught us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. If you really understand the grace of God, you really have seen the grace of God, then you will deny yourself anything that is not fitting of God and all worldly lusts. Worldly lust, you know, people think of, uh, really, uh, you know, what we call carnal sins. But worldly lust are the attractions of the world. <coughs> Power and greed and, you know, bitterness and envy and strife, the works of the flesh. The first thing the grace of God does is the grace of God teaches us to repent. The grace of God teaches us to turn from ungodliness and worldly lusts. And then from there, the grace of God teaches us how we should live, to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Soberly means self-control. You know, if somebody's sober, they have self-control. Righteously means kind of an upstanding person, the way you treat other people. And godly is your relationship with God. So grace teaches us to turn from sin and to live right, internally with our neighbors and with God. Grace teaches us how we ought to live. And so when we think about grace, grace is not just God saving us for no purpose. Grace is God saving us so that grace can then teach us how to be. So grace has appeared and grace has taught us. But then I really want you to see Grace has taught us to repent, and then grace has taught us to turn to God. But I really want you to see verse 13. 
The next thing I'm interested in is the glory. The, uh, it says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the, God, of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That word glorious, uh, glorious appearing, in the Greek is literally appearing of his glory. So we have seen the grace of God, but we are looking for the appearing of his glory. The grace of God has appeared. It has taught us to turn from sin and it has taught us to do righteousness. The glory of God is what we are looking for, and it is our blessed hope. Now, what do you think about when you think about the word hope? I think that oftentimes, you know, we, we use a really worldly kind of hope. You know, it's something that you kind of wish maybe might possibly happen. But biblically, of course, hope is the thing that God has promised that we've got our eyes on, that we're looking for, that we're waiting for. Now, I mentioned this at the nursing home service. Your hope will affect the way that you live your life now. Your expectation will affect the way that you live your life now. If I were an athlete and I was getting ready to go run a marathon, I would eat differently, I would work differently, I would sleep differently, because I would be expecting for a marathon to come. Some people, um, you know, they, they have their 50-year class reunion or whatever, and leading up to their class reunion, you know, they work differently and they eat differently and they sleep differently and then that you know they do their hair differently and they dress differently to try to impress people that they didn't like at the time right that they don't know now people change their behavior based on what they're expecting based on their hope if we do not deny godliness and worldly lusts and live uprightly you know live right with ourselves with others and with God it means that our hope is not in the right place. Grace will always find its fulfillment when our hope is for glory. If what you're waiting for is the glory of God to be revealed. If what you're waiting for is you not to be lifted up, but to Jesus who came and died and was made low to be lifted up and seen by everybody. If that's your hope, it's going to change the way you live your life. If you believe that Jesus could come bursting through that window at any moment, you're going to live your life differently. If you believe that God's going to come and that he's going to reveal his glory, that the one that we did see in the first coming as grace will come a second time as glory, it will change the way that you live your life. If you really believed that Jesus could step in at any moment to your life, if you really believe that one day God's glory would shine and reveal all things, I wonder how many of the excuses that we have about why we can't serve God would melt into the air. Looking for that blessed hope. That blessed hope. What is our blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God. And our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, our great God is our Savior, Jesus Christ. His grace has appeared and his glory will appear. What's really interesting about the way that this is structured is that verse 14 tells us the goal. I don't normally do this, but I've got three points. The grace, the glory, and the goal. <laughs> and they all started with the same letter. It was really neat. I like that. 
who gave himself for us, that he might. Okay, that's, that's a purpose statement. Jesus is the glory of God. Jesus is the greatness of God made visible because... Of course, because he's God in human flesh. But the, re- the way that he made the greatness of God visible was when he gave himself for us. I want to draw your attention to that. Do you, what, how would, you know, God showed himself in a pillar of fire. God showed himself in a pillar of cloud. God showed himself in different ways. But the time that God showed himself most supremely was when Jesus came and died for us. When we, it wasn't that, a couple weeks ago, we looked at Hebrews 1. God, who in various times and diverse manners spoken unto our fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. If you want to see God clearly, you want to see the glory of God, you want to see the greatness of God, it's not in the temple so bright that people couldn't go in. It's not in the pillars that led them through the desert. It is in the one who leads us to the cross. It is in the one whose death is so glorious and so shining that it doesn't keep us from entering into the presence of God, but it allows us to enter into the presence of God. So really, grace and glory, we talk about them like they're two different things, but the greatest glory is the glory of suffering. And I hate to spoil this for you, but you will be the greatest that you can be. You will be the most glorious that you can be when you suffer with Christ. When you experience discomfort, when you experience inconvenience, when you go out of the way, go the extra mile, turn the other cheek for the name of Jesus, that's when you're most like Jesus and that is when you are most glorious. So far from saying that all glory is to God alone, Far from saying that all glory is to God alone, making us less glorious as human beings, as creatures made in the image of God, we only reach the fullness of the glory God made us for when we put God's glory first. You see what I mean there? If I'm seeking myself, if I'm trying to lift myself up, make myself important, make myself valuable, then I will never be anything but a pale shadow of what God intended for me to be. If a mirror tries to draw attention to itself, it's useless. What the fuck is a mirror? But when a mirror shines the light of the glory that's greater than itself, that's when a mirror becomes glorious. You know, a, uh, a mirror is as pretty as the person it's looking at. You as an image bearer of God will be as beautiful and as glorious as the glory that you have your eyes fixed on. If you feel like you are not living up to your purpose in life, you feel like you don't have a mission, you don't have any purpose, like you're just fumbling along, waiting to die, the problem is that your eyes are not fixed in the right place. I mean, everybody, you know, you've got to live indoors, you've got to eat, you've got to do things like that. But if that's the end of your life, what a waste. The word mission actually comes from the Latin word for to send out. In fact, uh, missionary is the Latin form of the Greek word apostle. Somebody who's been sent out by somebody else. If you want to have a mission in your life, you want to have purpose in your life, 
that means that you've got to be sent out for some, for some ends beyond yourself. If everything in your life comes back to what makes me feel good, what do I like, what do I dislike, what do I, what do I, what do I, your life is never going to have any purpose. Your glory is too small of a thing to live for. Your life is too insignificant. Your meaning is too small. Your life is too valuable to spend it on something as small as your life. But when you fix yourself fully on the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that's when you light up with glory. So living for the glory of God alone, you experience this reflected glory. And that glory is experienced only through his grace. So you, the more you sacrifice yourself, the more you put yourself down, the more beautiful you are in the eyes of God. And the more you lift yourself up and point yourself inward, the more you rob yourself of the only light that could give you any real meaning. Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us. So what is the goal? First, the goal of grace, that he might redeem us from all iniquity. Now, we as Christians, a lot of the time, would really be content to be redeemed from some iniquity. We as Christians would really generally be happier if we had, you know, some sin. There's certain sins that I, you know, that I really like. And God, if you could cleanse this sin from my life, you know, if you could get rid of my temper, but, you know, I really, uh, this other part I really enjoy, you know, God, leave that alone. That's not what the grace of God was for. The grace of God is to redeem you, to buy you back from all iniquity. He gave himself for us. He gave his life to buy us out of slavery to sin. That's the purpose of his grace. It's the goal of his grace. What's the goal of his glory? And purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. God wants his glory to appear now. He wants his greatness and his love and his mercy to appear now. But because Jesus is not yet back, because Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, the way that God reveals himself now is in the body of Christ on the earth. The way that God reveals his glory is that he's taken you, he's cleaned you, and he has made himself a peculiar, a special people who are zealous of good works. I wonder how many of us anybody could describe as zealous of good works. Do you get excited about doing good things? Or is it like pulling teeth? You know, is it like, is, do you say, you know, I understand that I've failed before. I understand I've made mistakes. I understand, I understand, I understand. But I now realize that my greatest purpose in life, my greatest glory in life, my greatest wonder in life will not be based on me, but will be based when I reflect the goodness of God. God's purpose in coming and dying on the cross was so that he could make himself a special people, bring together a special people to himself who are passionate, who are zealous, who you cannot stop them from doing good works. Now, you know, churches all across this country have spots that need to be filled and jobs that need to be done and stuff like that. 
until finally somebody goes and they just kind of bully somebody into working. But how different would it be if we were zealous of good works? If a teaching position opened up or a mopping position opened up or a driving a van or a vacuuming a van position opened up and you were trying to beat other people to it because you were so passionate about putting the love of God on display. You know, how different would your life be if God was no longer the 11th thing on your list of 10 priorities? How different would your life be if your heart was fixed on the glory of God alone? If you said, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, I'm done making excuses, I'm just going to do it. (laughs) I'm going to turn from my sin and I'm going to turn to the Lord. If you're not a Christian, that's really simple. You know, you say, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that Jesus died for me. And I want to trust him. And God makes you a new creature. If you are a Christian, it's also really simple. Lord, I know I haven't lived up to the standard that you would have me to live up to. But by your grace, not by my own strength, I'm going to turn from those things. And by your grace, not by my own strength, now I'm going to serve the way that I ought to serve. By your grace and not by my own strength, Lord, I want you to make me purified and then zealous of good works. If you are not zealous of good works, I want you to hear me, you are coming short of God's plan for you. But he says, I want to know what God's plan for my life is. You know, I want to know what God wants me to do. I'm telling you right here, by the authority of the word of God, God wants to make you his special, peculiar person. He wants to purify you. And he wants to make you zealous of good works. That is God's purpose in your life. What the specific works are that God wants, I don't know. But what I do know is that God intends for you to live with that passion. And that passion is not something that you will work up in yourself. That passion is something that you will experience when you are looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The more you think about Jesus, the more you wrap your mind about what Jesus has done, the more you fix your heart on who Jesus is, the more you'll want to serve. I'll give that as an example. I've had people that... Yeah, they just get mad if you try to talk to them about doing anything. Or you just don't think I'm any good. You're just really mad at me. And then there are people who are already doing 10 or 12 different things coming up to me and apologizing that they can't do any more because they are not physically capable of being in two places at once. The difference is not that one person's better than the other, but that one person has caught a glimpse of the glory of God more than the other. And if you want to see the glory of God, you always find it in the grace of God. How can you deny any service for the Jesus who died for you? How can you (coughs) be anything less than excited, anything less than zealous to go and reach people and serve people and put the greatness of your God and your God alone on display. Our last verse, Paul then tells Titus, these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Have to include this part. Paul tells Titus, 
that these things he's just said, it is Titus's job to speak them 